Let's begin our sermon with prayer. O Lord, you speak to us in the wonders of your creation and in the words of your precious scriptures. As we unfold those words of scriptures, we ask you to bless the words of our sermon. Give us ears to hear your voice and eyes to see your goodness, that we may joyfully serve you all our days. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord. Amen. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we had covered Christ's baptism two weeks ago where he was anointed. The Holy Spirit descended upon him and it was made clear. This one and only this one is the anointed one to be our Savior, the Messiah or Christ. After that, he was led out into the desert by the Holy Spirit and was tempted for 40 days by the devil and temptations you and I would never stand up to. But he did and were credited with his standing up to them, never falling once. Then he called five to six of his disciples. And last week we found him in Cana at the wedding feast where he blessed the wedding with the miracle of providing that very wonderful wine. After that, he heads off the mountains down into Capernaum. And and then he goes down to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover feast. While he's there, he cleanses the temple. So first time in his ministry, he'll also do that a second time during Holy Week right before his death. And then he has that meeting with that prominent member of the, of the Sanhedrin, that Pharisee, Nicodemus. That's recorded in John chapter 3. And it's, if, if we lost all the rest of scriptures and only had John chapter 3, that conversation with Nicodemus, we could feel comfort in knowing we knew, have everything we needed to know to be saved about Jesus. Then he starts heading north again, back up to Galilee. In between, very important event, he stops and meets that Samaritan woman at the well. All right. So we find him uh, shortly thereafter in his hometown of Nazareth. And he goes to the synagogue. Synagogues were the precursor to our local congregation. Um, Very similar. They had assigned scripture lessons. And then uh, a rabbi or a scribe would take uh, one of those lessons and he would explain it to the congregation. This would be the precursor to our modern sermon. Jesus goes to the very synagogue that he probably grew up learning the word of God perfectly for us in our place and hearing it. And it was a custom then if you had a prominent rabbi or scribe there, you would offer them the opportunity to explain scriptures. Jesus is kind of young to be a prominent rabbi or a scribe, but he has this understanding that nobody else ever has had a scripture and his reputation goes before him. So they invite him to and he does. And he reads the words of today's sermon, a prophecy written 700 years earlier. A prophecy that was about the return after the fall of the Babylonians of the nation of Judah. And that would be 150 years after Isaiah's prophecy. And that is our sermon text today, Isaiah's prophecy. And in it we see the Lord's anointed changes us from prisoners to priests. This is a restoration of the true Zion and an adoption of the Gentiles. And so our text for our sermon is Isaiah 61, verses 1 through 6. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn and to provide for those who grieve in Zion to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. 
They will rebuild the ancient ruins and restore the places long devastated. They will renew the ruined cities that have been devastated for generations. Aliens will shepherd your flocks. Foreigners will work your fields and vineyards. And you will be called priests of the Lord. You will be named ministers of our God. You will feed on the wealth of nations and on their riches you will boast. This is the word of our Lord. As I said, Isaiah prophesies both the destruction that the Babylonians would bring as God's chastisement on Israel, on the people of Israel, Judah, for rejecting him, but he also prophesies the restoration. And that restoration is a foreshadow. It would happen seven or 150 years, some years after Isaiah had prophesied, but it would happen 550 years later when Christ and lived for us. That's why Christ read this and said, today in your hearing these scriptures are fulfilled. And again, through that restoration, we see the Lord's anointed changes us from prisoners to priests. And that begins right away. The spirit of, the name used for the Lord, two names, the majestic Lord, the, the, the master of the universe Lord, is upon me. Because the Lord has anointed me myself in order to bring good news to the afflicted. And there it is, brothers and sisters in Christ. We covered the baptism of our Lord uh, two weeks ago, but we see this is it. He's the Messiah. That's the Hebrew word for anointed. He's the one anointed to bring the good news of salvation to those who are afflicted. And those names used for God are very important. The first gets translated sovereign, Lord, or majestic, or master. It means he's master over the universe. He's the one who created it all, and he has supreme reign. And he has supremely reign over all creation, to make this happen. In the name Lord, that means that, that represents that God is absolute. He needs nothing from us, can receive no benefit from us truly, and yet he's faithful to his promises and is full of grace. So we see he's ruling over all creation in this name to send the Savior, his Son, who will bring good news to the afflicted. What is the afflicted? Afflicted by our sin. Afflicted by the slavery we have to the devil in our natural condition. And the Holy Spirit is the one that anointed him, having landed upon him at his baptism, making it clear, this one is the one who saves us from our affliction. So we're told, he has sent me in order to bind up the hearts of those whose hearts have been broken. I cannot help but to think of pious, wonderful believers like Daniel, who would have been hauled off in exile even before the temple was destroyed by the Babylonians. And how after he'd heard of the temple's destruction, how his heart was broken, how he would often look towards the direction of Jerusalem and lament the fact that the temple was gone. There was no reminder of God's presence. There was no reminder of that lamb that was sacrificed in the morning and the evening that pointed to the lamb of God that would take away the sins of the world. So obviously this is fulfilled in the restoration. But Jesus binds up the broken hearted. Folks, God subjected the sovereign Lord, the master Lord. He subjected this world to decay. And let's admit it. If you look at it and, uh, without much joy, you could say life stinks. We have things that break our hearts. We lose loved ones to that awful thing called death, that terrible enemy. And we ourselves will one day be victims of it, won't we? There are many things to mourn about as the things we work so hard for fall apart, break and pass before our eyes and relationships are damaged by our sin and the sins of others. But Jesus comes and does something with a broken heart. The heart that was dead in sin, he gives it the Holy Spirit and makes it alive in him. 
You are eternally alive because Jesus has put his Holy Spirit in your heart so that you know that he is your Savior, that your relationship has been made right with God, and that you are adopted as his children. So we're told to proclaim freedom to the captives, a complete opening to those who have been put in restraints, a literal translation of the Hebrew. All right, again, the people of Israel would be allowed to return. They would be released from their captivity. That would happen after the Persians had conquered the Babylonians 75 years after the temple had been destroyed. Directly fulfilled there. But there's a bigger picture of the Messiah here again, brothers and sisters in Christ. You and I, in our natural condition, are captives. The scripture says we are conceived slaves to sin, death, and the devil. And if that's the condition we remain in, we are going straight to hell. All we can do is sin against God. Even the things we do that benefit our fellow man are sins against God. But Jesus has come in his cross in which he suffered the punishment for our sins, his perfect life and innocent death, the payment made, he's bought us. He's ransomed us from our slavery. His cross is the sledgehammer that busted our chains. Brothers and sisters in Christ, you are free. While you and I continue to sin because of our sinful nature, we are free. Because we have been adopted and made God's children. His word comes time and time again. And the blood of Christ is poured all over us. Washing that sin away. We are now children of God. Verse 2 says, He has sent me in order to proclaim the Lord's year of grace and our God's day of vengeance. Now you and I are not Jewish people, Israelites. We, we wouldn't have cel- we've never celebrated the year of Jubilee. This happens every 50 years in which if you had found yourself in poor economic circumstances and had to sell yourself as a slave to a fellow Israelite, you were released. Your land you weren't to plant on it that year. God was going to provide naturally and God would give you rest in that jubilee year. And if you had found yourself where you had to sell your land, which was your inheritance, it reverted back to you. God had set this up as a picture for what God does for us. The devil tempted Adam and Eve. They fell into sin. But in Christ, God takes us back. He gives us rest. You don't have to work for your forgiveness. He gives it to you. You don't have to earn your salvation. He gives it to you. But he also adds that word in the day of God's vengeance. This is judgment day. Judgment day is scary. It's terrifying. You can deny God until you're blue in the face. You can scream it's unfair. But on judgment day, you will know that you deserve hell and you're going there. Unless you, which you are, are one of the captives that Christ has set free, putting his Holy Spirit in your heart. Then judgment day is the day that you get released from your sinful nature completely. Never ever struggle with it again. You get the glorified body, the new heavens and the new earth. Because you're free. You inherit the kingdom in all its fullness. We're told to comfort all mourners. I had mentioned death earlier, the binding up the brokenhearted. Brothers and sisters in Christ, it just stinks to lose loved ones to that enemy of death. What more could make us mourn? But there's a wonderful joy behind it all. When we know that brother or sister, that relative was a Christian, remains a Christian. Therefore, we know we will see them again in heaven. We know we're going to heaven, they're in heaven, and there's going to be a family reunion. It means our mourning just simply means I'm going to miss you because it's going to be a while before I see you again. But when I see you again, we won't be sinning against each other at all, ever more. 
What a wonderful joy and blessing. Family reunion. What more comfort for mourners. And we're told uh, in connection with that to put on those who mourn for Zion a headdress in the place of ashes. It used to be the custom of the Jewish people when, when somebody had died when they were mourning, they would, they would put ashes over their head to show that. Zion was the mountain where the temple had been built. And Isaiah is prophesying the destruction of the temple. The temple would be rebuilt, but when Christ came, it was no longer necessary. Christ was the lamb, is the lamb who takes away the sin of the world. So there would be no longer a need to mourn for Zion. Zion was the mountain on the temple, but it only represented a shadow of the true Zion. The true Zion is the invisible Christian church of all believers. Being born with Jewish blood did not save you. Trusting in the one descendant of Abraham, who is true God, is what truly saved you. Jesus takes those who trust in him, and he takes the mourning off of us, he wipes away the ashes, and instead he puts on a turban. Who wore a turban in ancient Israel, this, this crown? Oh, the priest did. He makes you a priest. You no longer mourn because the temple's gone and sacrifices are no longer being made for sins. You tell people the sacrifice of all sins has been made and has removed them. You have a turban uh, of joy instead, uh, instead of ashes. The oil of joy in place of mourning says a toga of praise in the place of a gloomy spirit. A toga is something that you wrapped around your body. And here again is a beautiful picture you and I are not righteous in and of ourselves, but Christ has credited us with, our, with his righteousness. Last week in the sermon at the wedding feast, I mentioned that a wedding dress he's put upon us. It's his righteousness. Here it's said in terms that we men will find acceptable because we don't run around wearing dresses. A wrap. When God looks at you, he sees Christ's righteousness. And what joy that is because we still struggle with our sinful nature and it wins at times to know, but it doesn't stick. God's blood washes it away. God looks at me and sees his righteousness. What more could give you praise in this life? And so, no, we don't go through life at like we're on, on a euphoric drug-induced high. But no matter how bad it is in life, even when we have it as bad as Job, we can say, I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end, I myself will see him. I and not another with my own eyes. So it gives us a joy in knowing that very Savior is even using those hard things for our benefit. Otherwise, he would not allow them to come upon us. And so we get that praise in place of a gloomy spirit. So we're told then they will be called prominent tree of righteousness. After it's translated as oaks of righteousness. We don't know for sure what that tree was, but it was a prominent tree that stood out. That's what Jerusalem was supposed to be for the world. Here is where the Savior is to be found. And they flopped at it over and over again. But the true invisible Christian church, made up of all who trust in Christ, it can be seen. It can be seen in you. Because you'll go back after we're done with our worship today. You'll go back to your homes, back to your lives but Christ's righteousness will shine through. You will function as priests whether you realize it or not. People say, where is salvation to be found? My neighbor is a Christian. It stands out. That's the one I need to talk to. Your lives are living sermons, sinners who are freed in grace. So we're told of being prominent tree of righteousness, which is the Lord's planting for his own glorification. 
It's for God's glorification. And what is God's glory? It's His grace, the fact that He freely gives us salvation. Too often Christians get confused and they become pharisaical. They want to show their own righteousness, not Christ's righteousness. And they want to say, look at what a good Christian I am. And what they do is they chase people away. But God works you, makes you a prominent oak, a prominent tree of righteousness for His glory, which is that others are brought into salvation through you whom He's brought into salvation. Verse 4, so we see so far the Lord's anointed, that's Jesus, changes us from prisoners to priests. He's made us priests. And that's the restoration of the true Zion, which is the invisible Christian church. The temple on Mount Zion was only meant to be a visual representation of that. And so we're told in verse 4, then they will rebuild the ancient ruins and they will rise up places that had formerly been desolate and they will repair devastated cities and the desolate places of generation after generation. And yeah, that happened in Israel. It had been abandoned and, 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 and they were allowed to return. But there are other desolate places. Adam and Eve, after they fell into sin, Cain's descendants fell away from the Lord as Cain did. He killed his brother that didn't fall away from the Lord. Seth came along. Seth's descendants stick to the Lord. But suddenly one day there seems to be one righteous person left with his children, Noah. And God starts all over again. Noah's sons spread throughout the world. My ancestors would be uh, descendants of, of uh, Ham and, and our Jehoshaphat. Anyways, going up into the Europe portion, same thing with your ancestors. And they had lost it. Their hearts had become desolate places. This is where we get into the second part of our sermon, an adoption of the Gentiles. Yes, when Isaiah prophesied, my ancestors, both that would have come from the island of England and, and in Germany, they probably hadn't even heard of the Romans yet. And when Christ fulfilled this on the cross, they were worshiping pagan gods. But somewhere along the line, God sent someone to proclaim the word. And in every generation, somebody clung to that word and they shared it with their children. What an amazing blessing. Desolate cities becoming filled, desolate hearts passing on the good news of salvation in Christ. Now, Isaiah previously talking about the Babylonians hauling them off had, had told them that strangers would take their land from them and would eat the fruits of their land and take the blessings of their city. But in verse 5, he says it in a positive way, not as a punishment. He says, And strangers will stand over and pasture your flocks, and foreign sons will be your plowmen and tend your vineyards. They're doing the work for you. Who did you usually send out to tend to your, to your flocks? Well, if you didn't have a hired hand, it was your son. Brothers and sisters of Christ, you and I might not have a drop of Jewish blood in us, but God has made us his shepherds. He's made us his plowmen working in his field. He calls you to do that in your daily jobs and the daily stations and positions you have in your life. You get the work of adopted children. It's a blessing to get to show others, to feed others the word of the Lord as God presents its opportunities. And he says in verse 6, But you will be called priests of the Lord, and it will be said about you ministers of our God. You see, you are the bricks that make up the temple. Every time somebody is brought to faith in God through the working of the Holy Spirit that they trust in Jesus, they make that brick. They're another brick that builds up the temple. Christ is the foundation. But they also are priests. We'd already got into that with the turban. You tell others their savior. Your actions point to being a redeemed child of God, often without even realizing it. 
Minister of God means servant. We have been made prince and princesses, and yet we are happy to have the privilege to serve our God by showing people their sin so that we can show them they need a savior, and then showing them their savior. We are the prominent oak of righteousness as we tell others the good news of salvation in Christ. And we're told, and you will eat the strength of the nations and you will pride yourself on their glory. The invisible church has taken in people from all over the world and all walks of life. And everyone comes with their own natural gifts God has given them and their own spiritual gifts that God has given them. And look at how he's used it to build up his church. I I think about men like Bach who blessed us with this beautiful music that even unbelievers rush off to listen to. And how the world has benefited because of you and I and the gifts God has given us that we use serving him. For example, our public school system was the brainchild of Martin Luther and his right-hand man, Philip Melanchthon. It evolved and got more elaborate, but the idea of a public education was their idea. The world benefited. Oh, hospitals? Yeah, those pretty much came from Christians. Orphanages? Yeah, those pretty... The point is the invisible church has benefited and it grows as you use your gifts, and yet the world also benefits because you're here. Why? Because you're not only a brick in the temple of the Lord, you're a priest that serves the temple by pouring the Lord's blood upon others with the gifts he's given you. So yeah, Jesus goes to his own synagogue and he reads this portion of scripture and he tells them, today in your hearing this scripture is fulfilled and we rejoice because Jesus is the Lord's anointed and he's changed us from prisoners, slaves to sin, death and the devil to priests who serve him and are also prince and princesses in his kingdom. This is a restoration of the true Zion. That's the invisible Christian church. And it's adoption of the Gentiles. So that you and I, maybe not having any Jewish blood in us at all, are also priests who serve the Lord. Amen. And now to him who sits upon the throne, the lamb once slain but raised again, be all the glory he has won. All thanks and praise. Amen. Amen.